So I have titled the message this morning, Overcoming Fear with Fear, which sounds kind of weird, right? Uh, but that's exactly what we're supposed to do. Overcoming fear, again, the fear of the things that can harm us in this world, uh, the things that might frighten us, and, uh, and see them replaced with a healthy fear of the Lord. What I want to do is just read the, the text that we're going to be in, 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8 through verse 18. And uh, I'm just going to read it in a straight through sitting here, and then we'll begin to talk about it. Look at the text with me. 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We'll stop there for now. We've talked a lot over the last several weeks about subjecting ourselves or submitting ourselves to others. We looked at the beginning of uh, chapter 3, the end of chapter 2, where it talks about being subject to every human institution. Subject yourselves to earthly masters, wives, be subject to your husbands, etc. Those were, those were difficult passages to walk through, but I think really really good for us to be thinking about what does it look like to live again as believers in a non-believing world seeking to serve that world rather than seeking to fight against it or dominate it as it seeks to dominate others and again those are tough texts though and I, I think perhaps maybe those have been difficult for some of you to hear and some of you to apply and when we get to the rest of chapter three I think Peter really acknowledges that that the Bible is honest about just how scary it can be to be subject to unjust, fallen institutions and individuals. In fact, look back at chapter 3, verse 6, when he was talking to wives, and again, he's talking about unbelieving husbands. If you're a believing wife and you have an unbelieving husband, maybe an unjust situation, he acknowledges that it can be scary. Verse 6, he was talking about Sarah. He says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good. And what? Don't fear anything that is frightening. 
So he's acknowledging it. There are things that actually are frightening, but he's encouraging us not to be afraid in the midst of them. Still honest about the frightening nature of certain situations. And so I think it's fair to say that the biggest hindrance to willing submission, to subjecting ourselves in a fallen world to fallen people and fallen institutions, the greatest hindrance is fear. Fear has uh, ruled us as people. Fear has had a lot of control over us as human beings since the, the world first fell into sin all the way back in the Garden of Eden. If you recall when Adam and Eve subjected themselves to the lie of Satan in the Garden, right? They, they sinned against God. They, they failed to trust in the Lord. They faced the consequences of that subjection, which was, God said, you'll surely die, right? The guilt of that sin fell over them. Notice that their first reaction was one of fear. I'll put this up on the screen for you. It's from Genesis chapter 3. It says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid. When the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was, what? I was afraid. Because I was naked. And I hid myself. Again, I was aware of my vulnerability. I was aware of my guilt. I, I was afraid. Fear happens when two things are realized. The first is that we realize our vulnerability, right? When you know that you are in a vulnerable situation, you're going to be afraid. And secondly, when you're uncertain about who's in control of your fate in a vulnerable situation, right? I'm vulnerable and I'm not sure who's in control. Those those will bring about fear. So Peter, I think, is well aware of all this as he's talking about submission. And he's aware this could, this could be a cause for great fear among the churches of Asia Minor that he's writing to. And so he begins to address that in this next section of the letter. He's addressing that concern that they may have. He wants them to know something that's encouraging about their security. Again, in contrast to their vulnerability. He wants them to know about their security, and he wants to tell them that despite the scary nature of their present circumstances, yes, persecution is coming. Yes, trials are being ramped up. Yes, life is getting harder to be a Christian in a non-Christian world. Despite the scary nature of those circumstances, God is the one who is ultimately in control of your faith. It's a wonderful text. It's an important text. And we're going to actually be in that theme over the next few weeks as he moves through chapter 3 into chapter 4. God is the one who's ultimately in control of your faith. Before we get to the text this morning, I want to tell you a story from the Old Testament. Remember earlier in the service, Jarmaine came up and she read from Isaiah chapter 8. There was a reason why I had her go there, uh, and I want to tell you the story about what was going on around Isaiah chapter 8. It's a story of Sennacherib's invasion of Judah. Now, Sennacherib was the king of Assyria. Assyria was the dominant, very scary world empire to the north of Judah, of the north of Israel, in the 8th century B.C., and 
He was coming down and he was taken over. Uh, it was a very scary time to be in Israel. So what I'm going to tell you is I'm going to summarize the story, but this is coming from 2 Kings 19 and Isaiah chapter 8. In relevant passage, I will, I will put up on the screen. You don't have to turn there. But near the end of the 8th century BC, Israel was divided as a kingdom. This was after the, the, uh, the disobedience of King Solomon, his rebellion against God, and the, the effect of that sin and the idolatry that had on the, the whole rest of the nation. There was tension that, that grew within Israel, and it, it split them into uh, factions. They, they began to fracture. The 12 Jewish tribes split apart. The 10 tribes that were in the north uh, they, they stuck together and they called themselves Israel. They, keep, they kept that name. But two other tribes in the south uh, split off and took over that southern territory and they called themselves Judah. All right? So you have, at that point in the Old Testament, you see, you see Judah and you see Israel. You're talking about two different parts of ancient Israel. They had split. They had divided. And by the way, Jerusalem was in Judah. All right? Now, because of the people's continued disobedience, God sends a word through Isaiah the prophet that judgment was coming. They were going to face the consequences for their sin, and the consequences were he was going to allow the Assyrians to conquer the cities of Israel. I'll put this up on the screen for you. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the sum of Remaliah, therefore behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all of his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all of its banks. It will sweep into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. So what is God telling the people through Isaiah? He's saying, look, a flood is coming. But this was not a flood of water, but of armies. Armies are coming down from Assyria. And it would not only take out Israel, but it would reach up to the necks of the people in Judah. It would reach up this flood to the necks of the people in Jerusalem. And that's exactly what happened. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, marched and overtook not only the northern kingdom of Israel, but some 46 cities and villages and towns within the southern portion of Judah, and he did it with ease. And it wasn't long before his armies had rolled right up outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. Now the king of Judah was a man named Hezekiah, and he was a godly man. At that time, he sees this army rolling up outside of the walls of the city, and we're told that he, he stripped the temple in Jerusalem of all of its gold and silver to offer it to Sennacherib in hopes that the Assyrian army would turn away, that would spare the city of Jerusalem. But Sennacherib didn't, didn't buy that. He sends a messenger, his supreme commander, to speak to the people of Jerusalem. This man walks up within shouting distance of the wall, and he begins to yell at them so that everybody can hear what he has to say. And I'll put this on the screen. This is from 2 Kings 19. He says, Incline your ear, O Lord. Hear and open your eyes 
Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O O Lord, are God alone. And I'm sorry, I said that was the commander. That was not. That was Hezekiah's response to what he said. So he was yelling at them, and Hezekiah hears that, and he says, God, save us. God, save us. And that's when Isaiah received this message from the Lord. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. So Isaiah tells the king that God's going to take care of this whole situation. This very scary moment. God's going to take care of it that Sennacherib would return to his own lands. And he actually tells him he's not only going to return to his own lands, but he's going to eventually be killed. And so Isaiah gives strict instructions for the people of Jerusalem who are sitting on the wall, listening to these attacks, listening to this mocking. And he says, don't listen to Sennacherib's commander. Just don't listen to him. And secondly, Don't speak anything back. And when the commander continued to yell at them, he was yelling at them, don't listen to Hezekiah. Don't you know we've conquered every other city in this land. Even when they prayed to their gods for protection, it was no use to them. We conquered them. Do you really think your God is going to deliver you from us? But the key moment in that text there is that the people hearing all of that, they remained silent. They listened to the word of the Lord. They trusted in him, even as I imagine some of them were shaking in their boots. They remained silent. And that very night, the angel of the Lord visited the Assyrian camp and struck down 185,000 of their troops dead. In the morning... All they could see was a field filled with lifeless bodies. And we're told then that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed. This is from 2 Kings 19. Departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherzazar, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat, and Isarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. So the word of the Lord came true. Not only did he depart, but he was killed. Now you might be saying, okay, that's a cool story from the Old Testament. Why did you just tell us that story? Why did you bring that up? I brought it up because I think Peter brings it up. Look back down at chapter 3 here. Verse 13, he says, Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Those words that he writes here in chapter 3 are an allusion to Isaiah chapter 8. The words are almost identical, with one significant difference. What Peter does here is he names Christ as the Lord in whom people are to place their trust. Look again at the whole unit of thought that accompanies this quote. Again, verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Do you think that the people in the 8th century B.C. in Jerusalem had good reason to fear their seemingly unavoidable subjection to the mighty Sennacherib? Of course they would have. Just as if a big army rolled up to the gates of the city of Chicago and were threatening us and we knew that everywhere they'd been, they'd conquered everybody, we'd be afraid, right? Of course, they'd have every reason to be afraid. But what Isaiah was doing in that moment was he was letting them know, he was making it clear to them, there's a better fear for you to have. Fear God. Fear God. Why? Because God is in control of everything. I wonder if this idea of fearing the Lord is confusing to you. I think it's confusing to many of us. We hear the Bible talk about the fear of the Lord, fear the Lord, fear him, all you people. And, and maybe we're sort of struck with, well, that doesn't sound very loving. He's our, he's our father. He's God. He's good. He's Jesus. He's the Savior, you know, like mercy and grace. What does it mean to fear him? That almost sounds like a contradiction. So I want to help you to understand what that means. Again, go back to what I said before. What, what brings about fear in us? We, we become afraid when we become aware of our vulnerability. And we, we're, we're wondering, like, who's in control of our fate? We're afraid when, when there's a power that seems to be over us that there's not much we can do about. That's scary, Right? So the fear of the Lord, think of it this way. The fear of the Lord is to understand that whatever powers may be out there that make you vulnerable, he's more powerful than them. He's bigger. He's really in control. And if we couple that with the fact that God is good, and that God has said he is for us as his people, that's an extremely comforting place to be. It, it still evokes fear. And I've been trying to think of analogy for this all week, and I, I can't really think of a, of a good one that doesn't break down at some point. But the, the best that I could come up with was, you know, I, I just sort of envisioned myself like walking in the jungle on a trail, right? I'm just on an African safari one day, 
and all of a sudden this big, you know, like group of, of, of ravenous carnivores like surround me and start barking at me and yipping at me and I, I think I'm going to die. I think they're going to eat me, right? I'm scared. I'm vulnerable. I'm not in control at this very moment, right? But if in that moment a lion comes out from the bushes, looks at me, winks, <laughs> roars, and then just like starts going after these ravenous predators, throwing them off, making them yelp, causing them to run away, I'm still going to be afraid of the lion. And yet at the same time, I'm going to be like, he's for me. That's what it means to fear God. Is it reverence? Yes. Is it the recognition that he has all the power in the world he can, he can make to rise up and he can make to fall down? Yes. It's all of that. And that's frightening power. Except that I know that it's for me. So what is Isaiah saying to the people? Fear God. Fear God. Because he's in control of everything. Don't be afraid of what you see. Peter's telling us the same thing. He's saying, look, I know it's scary to be subject to corrupt governments. I know it's scary to be subject to unjust masters, those who have authority over you. I know it's scary to, to, to sometimes live with an unbelieving spouse who treats you poorly as a result of your coming to faith. I know that those things can be scary. In fact, I will admit that they're frightening. He says, though, unless you learn to see things a little differently, unless you learn to exchange your fear of man for a right fear of God, he's in control. He's in control. And he has promised he will deliver his people who trust in him from whatever this world may throw at them. I'm going to read this again, verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Have a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. Again, who's in control? If it should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. In other words, Peter's saying, look, all these things that we've been talking about, live righteously in this world. Live righteously in this world. And if your lives are characterized by righteousness, if, you're, if your lives are characterized by, by doing good, by trying to serve others, there isn't much reason for this world to give you trouble. But even if it does, 
Know that your security and your fate are in the hands of Christ himself. He is the cornerstone, remember? He's the center of all things. He's the one on which everything either rises or falls. He is the head of all things. He's been revealed to us. As the the point of all existence and all history. God is sovereign. Christ is head. So Peter's saying here, look, there's two things. There's a way to live so that persecutions can be minimized. Right? Again, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing good? Live live as servants in the world. You'll minimize the trouble that you have. But again, even if that fails, there's a way to endure it with confidence. How do we live righteously in order to minimize our odds of suffering? Go back to verse 8. This is beginning instructions. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. What does it look like to live righteously? It looks like this. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And again, he now quotes from Psalms. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I think there's two ideas that he's, he's presenting here. How do you live righteously in this difficult time? The first thing is this. Support one another. Right? Recognize, yes, it's hard. There's trials. There's persecutions. You're, you need each other to support one another. So how do you do that? You have unity of mind. You have sympathy. Right? You exhibit brotherly love. You, you have a, hum, a humble mind. You have a tender heart. Care for one another. Shore one another up. These are going to be hard days. Care well for each other. That's the first idea. The second idea then is, and then don't join in in the ungodly fray of fear. Because that will be your temptation. So he says, keep your mouths pure. Again, verse 10 and in verse 15. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. Verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone asked for a reason for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness. Do it with respect. You know what the opposite of that would be? In fear? The opposite would be to use my mouth to complain. The opposite of that would be to use my mouth to push back rather than to love and to serve and to do good against those who persecute me. To speak badly of the government. To speak badly of my spouse. To speak badly of my ungodly and unjust employer. Now keep your mouths from evil. Turn from evil and do good, he says in verse 11 and in verse 16. Seek peace with others, again, verse 11, verse 15. 
It's the same message he's been giving this whole time. Do good. Submit yourself. Be Christ-like. But trust in God. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. When we, when we are humble before the Lord, when we are honoring him as Lord, he hears our prayers. He's, he's with us, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So don't join in that fray. Verse 17, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. What's the great assurance that our vulnerability and uncertainty of fate have been adequately addressed by God? If, 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 if it means to fear God, to, to no longer feel like my vulnerability is an issue, that my fate is uncertain, I, I trust that I'm secure and that he's in control. If that's what it means, how do I have confidence that, that those things have been adequately addressed by God? Let's go back to the story of Sennacherib and Hezekiah. Jewish tradition tells us that the slaughter of the Assyrian army took place through the angel of the Lord and on the Passover night. That big night when 185,000 soldiers were slain. But the angel of the Lord delivered his people on the Passover night. How does Peter relate to his quote from Isaiah 8? in which he tells us to honor Christ as holy, to fear Christ. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. For those who are in Christ... The fear of man has been replaced with a healthy and comforting fear of God. Whereas the fear of man is rooted in our deep awareness of our vulnerability and the uncertainty about our future, the fear of the Lord is rooted in the rock-solid confidence that God is sovereign over all things, that my vulnerability has been changed to security, and that my future is blessed in heaven because of the Passover lamb's substitutionary death and resurrection for me. Church, as we move into the rest of the text, as we get into chapter 4, Peter, like Isaiah, is going to tell us the river of judgment is rising. That's the message here. In fact, he's going to tell us, essentially, it's going to get up to our necks. But he's also going to tell us we can remain silent in the face of that storm, because our God will deliver us. And in fact, he has delivered us through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So what are you afraid of? I want you to think about that. As you think about the, the difficulties of, of, of living the Christian life in a culture that's increasingly you know anything but Christian 
What are you afraid of? I hear a lot of fears. Are you afraid of the loss of uh, religious freedom in our country? I hear that fear a lot. Are you afraid of uh, your economic freedoms being diminished or taken away? Maybe you're afraid of a, of a harsh, unbelieving spouse. What are you afraid of? The application for us this morning is, look, remember the faithful works of God in the past. And then let them give you the confidence to face your fears in the present and in the future. God is faithful. God is in control. God is for us. This is what Peter was instructing the church to do in first century Asia Minor. He says, look, God has saved his people in the past by giving them a foretaste of redemption through the Lamb of God. That's what the Passover was about. And he says, and God has now done this for you, not just with a foretaste, but in the real sacrifice of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, on your behalf. It is finished. So if that's Peter's message to the first century church, can we as the 21st century church here in Chicago look back on the history of Peter's readers with the same confidence that they could look back on the 8th century B.C. Israelites? Yeah, we can. What were they afraid of? They were afraid of Rome. What were they afraid of? They were afraid of the institution of slavery. What became of Rome? What became of the household code of slavery? You know what became of both of them? They were overcome. And they were overcome by God in great measure through the witness and the ministry of the church. They are no more, but the church remains. The days of suffering are not yet complete. So yes, you and I are going to suffer too. You and I are going to face trials. You and I are going to potentially face persecutions and maybe increasingly so. But do we have to be afraid? I hope not. Because fear has been overcome by the comforting fear of God. He's in control. Jesus' work is sufficient for us too. Our hope is still certain. God's in control. Last thing I want to put up for you is the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, addressing this same kind of fear. He says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a good word, amen? So let's pray. Father, help us to believe it. Help us to believe, Lord. In the midst of scary circumstances, in the midst of unjust circumstances, in the midst of of, of hard-to-love people because they don't love us, whatever situations we may find ourselves, Lord, help us to believe that our call is not to not to fight back, not to scream back, not to protest back, but, Lord, to, to do good. To entrust ourselves to a holy God who judges justly. And to not be afraid. Lord, my, my analogy of the lion, uh, you know, saving me in the jungle is, is, is a poor analogy in comparison to you. But, Lord, I... I pray that you'd give us all some kind of image like that, that we could cling to, that we could believe that, that our, our, our awesome God, our powerful God, our roaring lion of a God is with us. You're for us. You'll protect us. You've saved us. Help us to have that confidence, even even as we will suffer. Gird us up, Lord. I pray that today would even be a, a turning point for us as your people. Help us to go from acknowledging in our minds that yes, God is big, God is in control, to really believing in our hearts and, and putting feet to our faith. Yes, I will not be afraid. I won't be subject any longer to, to anxieties that cripple me and depression that, that, just, that just collapses me. I won't be that afraid. Because God is for me. God is with me. What can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord? Make us confident people in you. And thank you for the deliverance that you have shown to us and applied to us through your son. You're so good. Lord, help us to fear you in all the right ways. We pray that in Jesus' name.